So you are, I think, the first person other than my dad who I can say that I've been to both a Cubs game and watched a Democratic debate with. So <laughs> what that that's worth? Good on you. That's, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I am proud to be the first person that since your dad, yeah, who uh, you have both been to a Cubs game with and watched a debate with. Outside of the bloodlines, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. That that is that is companionship, I suppose. That, uh, <laughs> that, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, those who are listening in, welcome. Uh, this is episode number five of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast. Uh, the Joe DiMaggio, Albert Pujols episode. Although I like neither of those players, so Sarah, is there a number five that you can suggest that's better than that? Like, uh, oh, man, um, number five. I so. I might be wrong about this. You're kind of putting me on the spot with this one. I did not know this question was coming. I'm putting you on the I, spot without even introducing you, no less. I think Michael Barrett wore number five. Yes. That's and I good. also think Michael Barrett punched AJ Pruszynski in the face once. And so I'm going to go with my number five as Michael Barrett for punching AJ Pruszynski in the face. I think in, if you're talking about just in terms of the best thing you can possibly do on a baseball diamond, punching AJ Pruszynski is like if you combined every achievement between DiMaggio and Pujols, all six of their MVPs, that wouldn't come close to punching <laughs> in the face. So, yes, I like it. The Michael Barrett episode of Three Strikes, You're Out. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Ken Schultz. I am a contributing writer to Outsports, to Baseball Prospectus, and to Cubs Den, also a stand-up comedian. I have written Introduce Yourself in my notes because I forgot to last time, and I'm damn professional with this. Uh, joining me, the other voice you've heard on the end of this podcast already, is my good friend, uh, Sarah Sanchez. She is a colleague of mine on Baseball Prospectus and a contributor to Bleed Cubby Blue. And were I John Sterling, I might introduce you as my cubby compañera, but I'm not John <laughs> Sterling, so we won't do that. I appreciate that. I appreciate you not channeling your inner John Sterling. Good Lord. At, uh, if at any point I modulate the word the, you are welcome <laughs> to hang up and just end the podcast immediately. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for joining me, Sarah. And I yeah. uh, appreciate, appreciate you uh, uh, joining this this silly little enterprise we started here. Uh, I guess we will start uh, kind of where we will start where we ended last podcast, where I had uh, last Friday, that Friday morning recorded a very thoughtful, very pleasant baseball conversation with a Brewers fan friend of mine, John Egan, uh, during which we talked a, lot, a great deal about Christian Yelich finishing runner-up in MVP, and I gave him my sympathies as, as a nice open-minded fellow that I am, and expressed that uh, if hotness, relative hotness, were a criterion for MVP, he would have the unanimous support of Gay Cubs Twitter, uh, which is technically true, although you are shaking your head, so feel free to jump in because he does have weird face. I will... I will Readily admit that. Look, I, I said the same thing when you and Ryan were on about this on Cub Twitter, Cubs Twitter. Like, Christian Yelich is not hot. I'm sorry. Like, I, I he might be quirky hot for some of you. He's not hot. Uh, I, th I thought it was weird when Ryan said it. I think it's weird now. There are hot baseball players, and Christian Yelich is not one of them. <laughs> I will readily, readily admit to the weirdness of this. There, there is no denying that. And I, I think the, the best way to define it, and I think I said this last time, too, is the part about him that does does it for me the most is the eyebrows. Uh, like oh he has he has power eyebrows, which you he usually does, don't think. He, has Pete, he looks like Pete Davidson. <laughs> Do you think Pete Davidson is hot? Yes, I, I was on shows okay, with Pete well. Davidson City way back before he became Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson. So well, uh, we we clearly have different tastes. Under no circumstances yeah. are we going to be competing for the same men. So that's good. <laughs> 
that's entirely fair. So, uh, but uh, I'm much but more of like a Wilson Contreras type girl. Like, I, I think I, Wilson is super like, hot. Yeah, Wilson. Wilson has kind of this. This is going to be a weird way to describe it, but Wilson has rage hotness. If that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> there, there, there's there's a lot of energy there, and, and he smiles. Rage is oh, the yeah. wrong word. Rage makes him sound angry. He's not angry. He's just intense, and the intensity <laughs> is hot. Yes, and and justifiable is when uh, anger is when he's angry for the most part too. It's not like John Lackey where oh somebody made an error behind me and I'm gonna yell. It's, right, but like Wilson's gonna get mad for John Lackey, right? right? So John Lackey can be irrationally mad. And Wilson will be rationally mad because <laughs> Lackey is his friend and he has to get his back, which is why everyone should love Wilson Contreras. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Absolutely, yes. And, and honestly, rational madness should factor positively into war, as, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. If we're going to put framing in there, for God's sake. And that is where we are about to discuss that in about two topics. But, uh, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. So uh, digressing back to the Yellish discussion. So after I had published said podcast with the very thoughtful and very, very pleasant conversation with a Brewers fan. That afternoon, Christian Yelich tweets directly at you, Darvish, with the phrase, be better than this, which, um, first of all, did Melania Trump hack your password for Twitter, Christian Yelich? <laughs> you, you really want to use that specific phrase? And then uh, and Christian Yelich attacks him with uh, then with what he thinks is his Trump card. Nobody needs help facing you. And I'm pretty sure that's the tone of voice that's proper for that kind of tweet. So, oh, yeah, it totally is. Uh, so I, I guess to, to, to back up and to, to tell the story uh, briefly, you, Darvish, uh, at the end of last week, uh, had talked to the L.A. Times, actually had, had uh, recorded a, a vlog in Japanese that the L.A. Times, Dylan Hernandez, had translated. Very, very thoughtful analysis of uh, how the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal affected him both as a pitcher and as a person and kind of came to the incredible conclusion of, I actually kind of needed this to be better, which is about, I, I, I don't know how you can get more magnanimous than that. But within that, uh, within that blog, you, you also described that a game uh, against an unspecified opponent during last season where he mentioned that he kept noticing the hitters focus gradually leaving the mound and facing left center field right before the pitch and him stepping off each time he did it. Then, and this is not you doing it all, then uh, Brett Taylor, our, our Cubs blogger colleague at Bleacher Nation, found video of Christian Yelich doing that very thing at Miller Park and you stepping off and you saying that I, you replied to his tweet by saying, yes, I stepped off because I saw his gaze shift and nothing more. And that's when Christian Yelich said, nobody needs help facing you. And to that, first of all, we say you Darvish had, by baseball prospectus measure, 6.0 warp in 2019, second best year of his career. So actually, it turns out the entire National League needs help facing him. Uh, but secondly, me thinks the lady doth protest too much a little bit there. Ed. Uh yeah, I totally agree with the latter, for sure. I thought that Christian Yelich was a bit over the top there, particularly considering that the rest of the Astros, I think, have a 585 OPS <laughs> against you, mm -hmm. Darvish, last year. So they absolutely do need help facing you, Darvish. Um, yeah. And look, I two things here. A, a lot of people kind of sided with Yelich here for whatever reason. Um, I think that's kind of ridiculous. I wrote about this for short relief on baseball prospectus, actually, mainly because 
If you are not following you, Darvish, on Twitter, you absolutely should be. Everything that you did in this entire exchange was awesome, in my opinion. So he he's interacting with a blogger who's written a story and tracked down something that was in a much larger story, right? Right. He then, like, clarifies and says, I wasn't trying to cast dispersions on any particular player. Yelich totally ignores that and just does his thing. Mm-hmm. Uh Josh Donaldson weighs into this conversation at one point, incidentally, and is like, I absolutely need help facing yes. you. What do you got? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. And, you know, Josh Donaldson went up in my esteem yep. at that moment in time. But, you know, he he kind of like took it in stride, took it with a grain of salt. He's like very funny on Twitter and a good guy to follow. I also think it's worth noting two things about well, one, the Brewers, and one about Christian Yelich. The yeah. first is that the Brewers are one of two other teams that are named in the original athletic piece as having suspicions about sign-stealing about them. Mm-hmm. Now, that does not mean there is sign-stealing going on at Miller Park, but they are. Evan Drellich only published the names of two teams outside of the Astros, and the Brewers were one of them. So it's not like people are coming at the Brewers from left field here, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe pun slightly intended, there appears to be a there there. The second thing is that Christian Yelich has ridiculous home road splits. Yes. And I wrote about this back in July, right around all-star time, because he really is two completely different players. And he was a different player when he was playing in Miami than he is in Milwaukee. And I, I am not saying all of that is due to whatever is going on with the Brewers, but there's something about Miller Park Christian Yelich hits better at Miller Park than he does at any other baseball park he has ever played at, better than he did in Miami, and it is not close. So the idea that he came out swinging at you, Darvish, I mean, I I don't know. That might wind up not looking great for him. I will also say this. I, I'm a Cubs fan, as we probably already figured out earlier, given where I write and my love of Michael Barrett. Um, the, <laughs> the thing about... I will I will say this. We don't know which teams are implicated here. Uh, the most ridiculous home road split that I saw in the entirety of the 2019 season was the Cubs' inability to win on the road. Yeah. I don't think that the Cubs were stealing signs. I have no evidence of that or whatever. But I, I do think that they were the one of the worst teams in baseball, like absolutely Marlins-esque outside of Chicago. And they were one of the best teams in baseball, like up there with the Astros and Dodgers in terms of win percentage at Wrigley Field. So for everybody who came at me when I sort of did the whole Christian Yelich home road splits thing, you're absolutely right. I have no explanation for why the Cubs were that great at Wrigley and not that great other places. And I'm sure that there's going to continue to be an an investigation here. In fact, Ken Rosenthal two days ago on The Athletic said that they should continue that investigation. And I don't know what they're going to find. I don't know who's going to be implicated. I mean, it's going to be wild to find out. But the fact that this is one of like 15 controversies that Major League Baseball is dealing with and stoking right now. Mm -hmm. Holy well. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, we have a a science dealing controversy and baseball decides that the best way to deal with that is to shit can 42 minor league teams, which, yeah, good, good plan there. Also 42. Really? Is Rob Manfred. Okay, look, Rob Manfred, buddy. 42 is a sacred number in baseball. It is also a sacred number for geeks who like the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, but literally sacred number in baseball. And I cannot believe you would take a plan that is so 
utterly evil, like that would require the billionaire Mr. Burns owners to just give a few million more dollars to the guys who make not enough money to eat more than peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And instead you want to cut the exact number of Jackie Robinson's number (laughs) of minor league teams from places like Elizabethtown, Tennessee, where they literally raised a million dollars to keep their park after the twins told them they needed to upgrade it instead of upgrading police facilities. I mean, the stories out of these towns are crazy. I'm working on a piece right now looking at the one of the only things that has brought uh, Republicans and Democrats together in Washington, which is that they cannot like both Republicans and Democrats want to protect their minor league ballparks and feel like what Rob Manfred is proposing is evil. And frankly, like, I I think he's Monty Burns. I've decided he is Montgomery Burns. Except Monty Burns is occasionally competent and occasionally executes something that is the goal that he set out to begin with. That, uh, yeah, if you want bipartisanship, I guess the one thing you have to just throw before Congress is the idea that, yeah, Rob Manfred is the devil. And everyone's like, yeah, I'll sign on board with that. Uh, so many things uh, in response to, in response to that. And the, the, the first thing that pops into my mind is that the thought occurred to me today that this particular strategy that, that they're throwing out there in terms of contracting minor league teams, awfully, awfully similar to the strategy back in 2002, where, again, baseball was heading for what appeared to be a contentious labor negotiation, where Bud Selig that winter took the podium right after the World Series and said, yeah, uh, Twins and Expos, uh, yeah, you're done. We're not going to have you around much, much longer. And I wonder if this is some kind of bizarre attempt to recreate that strategy as a bargaining chip somewhere, even though the minor leaguers aren't covered by the union. Uh, it, it's really uh, outside of pure evil, the only explanation that I can think of for it, and maybe pure evil is the most is the Occam's razor of this, and uh, I'm probably overthinking it a bit, but but the the, the similarities and, and the historical echoes, there, there's something that, that that's striking me about that, and, and I kind of wonder if they're going to be using this down the road for when they actually start talking to the union uh, in greater detail. Second of all, uh, and I just want to, in regards to number 42 as, as the Douglas Adams number, I uh, just want to throw out that I would make a so long and thanks for all the fish reference, except Manfred won't contract the goddamn Marlins like he should. So that's that's even ruined. And uh, to, guess, to go back to, I guess, the original thought about Christian Yelich, just to throw the home road splits at you. Yelich at home, 347, 451, 750. That's just short of, you know, prime Pujols. And road, you know, 312, 409, 597, still good, but that is not. MVP level. So to, to your point, I guess, with all that. Uh, and I guess one more thing about you, Darvish, too, uh, to, to circle back, way back, about 10 minutes ago. Uh, ask you this. It's, can you remember, because uh, the most heartening thing about this episode is how everybody on Cubs Twitter jumped to use defense uh, and and went after Yelich for, for going after you like this. Can you remember another time where a Cub had such a bad first season and got the entire fan base on him, and then one year after that became one of the most popular guys on the team? Oh, wow. So, mm. I've got I've got one that's kind of a comp for you, but I want to hear if, if any pops into your mind. I I don't think I have a comp. I do have I do have something kind of similar. There were not okay. a lot of fans 
of the Scott Feldman for Jake Arietta and Pedro Strope deal. Like mm-hmm. people kind of thought that Scott Feldman and Clevenger were like so good that how yep. dare uh, <laughs> the Cubs make that deal. And I will say that the fan base came around pretty quickly to lights out Jake Arietta, who mm-hmm. there to this day, nothing, absolutely nothing will ever be better than second half 2015 Jake Arietta. Oh my God. Yeah. That's just, just, just that, the, that number with those words gives me chills down my back. Like, <laughs> and and I, it, it would be a fun project to like do a Twitter search of Scott Feldman from July of 2013 and just see how many of those tweets we can find of people lambasting the Cubs for making that trade. That, that would be delightful. Uh, the one comp that I wanted to throw out for you in terms of bad first year and then kind of became just an immediate favorite, Moises Alou. I think is the closest I can come to that because he was a big, the big signing going into 2002 and had, you know, probably at best a mediocre season that year. And everyone was like, well, okay, maybe he's old and done. And then by the end of 2013, every time he came to bats, the fans had the going on and he was probably maybe the best hitter on that 2004 ill-fated team too. And is still thought of fondly today by the fan base, as far as I can, can remember. Minus that one temper tantrum he threw yeah. that yeah. resulted in the vilification of somebody who was totally innocent in mm-hmm. 2003. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is my one problem with Moises Alou is that yeah. he had one moment that actually ruined a Cubs fan's life. Yeah. And it seems and like he gets more of a pass for that for most people than, than he probably should. He doesn't get a pass for that one for me, but yeah. I agree with you. He certainly had a much better, um, and on, honestly like turning booze into a lose which my thing is like turning booze into use now that you get a yep. chance every time yep. he strikes someone out at Wrigley which is great history rhymes I love it <laughs> yeah my, my stance on the the, the Lutran tantrum is the same from the day that it happened that in that moment uh, right after that play happened the Cubs had a three nothing lead with a runner on second base and one out and five outs to go in that game and oddly enough other teams have faced this particular predicament in baseball and managed to win those games. Hmm. Go figure. Touche. Yeah. So uh, moving on, and I guess we'll go then to the uh, topic that we were kind of segueing into uh, at the top of the show. Uh, we actually have a baseball team working to improve themselves in November. What? <laughs> Is that allowed? We have two of them, actually, yes, I right. think. Yeah, the Braves. Um, the Braves have, yeah, the Braves signing Will Smith was a great deal. I like the fact that Will Smith used the qualifying offer as a lever to force a contract. I thought that was really yeah. smart and a nice, um, I hope that's an indication of what other agents will try to do in the future. Um, I, I, I think the Braves look really good right now. I like it. I would love to see the players find a way to use the qualifying offer on their side for once, Is it considering just the wreckage that it's produced in, for the MLBPA in terms of any negotiations for new contracts. That would be delightful if they could turn that around on the owners. And also it is finally nice to see in the year 2019 going into 2020 that the Atlanta Braves are finally joining the Willennium. So I'm <laughs> 100% in favor of that. And you've had to see that reference coming from a mile away. So, um, And the other team, and this is today's big news that is improving themselves, is of course our crosstown Rivals, the White Sox have signed Yasmani Grandal to a four-year, thirty-one or four-year, was it seventy-eight million dollar contract for? A that sounds about right. And, I don't have it in front of me, but that sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, and the consensus around baseball is good on you, and deservedly so. I mean, Grandal, 
on base of 380 last year, slugging 468 for catchers. That is outstanding. 121 run, weighted runs created plus and 5.2 uh, Fangraphs war. And I bring all of these numbers up because I'm about to throw at you, Sarah Sanchez, Wilson Contreras last year, <laughs> 355 on base percentage, 533 slugging percentage, better. 127 weighted runs created plus, better. Would you like to guess how many, how much war Wilson Contreras has accrued via fan graphs? For 2019, I think it's 2.7, right? Oh, you mean for multiple years? I think in 2019 it was 2.7. 2.7 is spot on, yes. So with those comparable offensive numbers, Wilson Contreras, according to Fangraphs, is half the player that Yasmani Grandal is. Framing can suck it. Uh, framing is framing is a totally ridiculous and uh, so here's my problem with framing and I'm going to do a longer deep dive on this in the off season when I have some time but if you take a stat like on base percentage it is an objective thing that we can measure like we can measure the number of times a player reaches base not on an air via hit or walk or whatever so however they got on base uh, and there's really not a lot of wiggle room there. I mean, the only wiggle room is like whether something was called an error or a hit, and that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the bats. In the case of framing, the catcher takes the majority of the blame for a situation that involves a pitcher, a catcher, and an umpire. Most importantly, an umpire, yes. None of which... (laughs) is solely in the control of the catcher. Mm-hmm. And I understand that both baseball prospectus and fan graphs, and there's somewhere else that does these framing stats and I'm blanking on it off the top of my head at the moment, but the, all of them try to account for that within their metrics somehow, but I don't think they do a good enough job of it. And that's why their framing stats don't actually match up, right? Because to some degree, they're all making a judgment call as to how right. much of that lies on the fault of the catcher versus the fault of the pitcher or the fault of the umpire. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I just think that's a little bit ridiculous. There's also a bunch of variables here that I don't think people take into consideration enough. So for example, um, I'm an, I I lived in Boston from 2006 until 2013 and I got to see the tail end of Wakefield's career. Mm. Framing for a knuckleball pitcher versus framing for somebody who's throwing 100 miles per hour down the pipe are fundamentally different things. Yes. There's not even the whole point of the knuckleball is that nobody knows where it's going. Like you could tell that Wakefield was having a good night when Veritech was missing all of the balls because the catcher couldn't even figure out where the ball was going to go. Right. Yeah. And look, the Cubs don't employ a knuckleballer, but they do employ a bunch of guys who live on the corners. They employ a, they employ a Kyle Hendricks and they employ a Cole Hamels and they employ a John Lester. All of those pitchers make their living nibbling at the edges, and that is not to say that there aren't some catchers who are better at stealing the stealing. And I use the word stealing deliberately because it is deception. Yes. Stealing those strikes than others, but that is to say that it's fundamentally different than being somebody who's catching. I don't know, like Noah Syndergaard, who's just going to throw. 99 miles right at you, right? I mean, those are different jobs and different things. And I understand that all the people who believe in framing and think they've done a good job of it and think that they've got some measurement that's useful there have tried to take all of these things into account. But you cannot say that a stat like framing 
is objective and comparable in the same way that a stat like on base percentages, mm-hmm. or even for that matter, a stat like defensive run saved or right. something else that you can tally and count in the same way. Yes. Uh, and a lot of a good deal of defensive stats have at least some subjective component to them. And that's obviously the problem with trying to create any defensive stats is trying to take that away as much as you can. So you can get any kind of objective measure. And to me, what framing is, uh, and this is kind of, I guess, going more to a philosophical argument against it, is that every time a, a catcher frames a strike, that's essentially an, another way of saying, saying stealing a strike. And to me, when you steal a strike, that's not so much catcher skill as much as umpire failure. And then right. I had umpires who could actually call a competent strike zone without the influence of the guy directly in front of them, then you'd have the game the way it's actually supposed to be played in, you know, the goddamn rule book. Uh, right. I mean, and, and this is the thing. And, and so a couple of points here. One, um, Boston University last offseason released a study where they looked at 10 years of ball and strike calls and they looked at how frequently those pitches are called correctly, right? Um, there's like 4 million some odd pitches in this data bank. I, you really should look this up. It's an incredible study. Yeah. Um, the best umpires in the game, the people who are A-plus doing the best job, miss like 7% of calls. Right. The worst umpires in the game miss close to 15% of calls. Yeah. They then, miss those calls. Sorry, what? And then Angel Hernandez misses 20. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and C.B. Buckner, right? Um, but so they, everybody whose name we know, basically. Um, yeah. But they miss those calls also in spots that are predictable. Like they're more likely to miss them in big spots where there are two strikes or where they're going to miss a walk than they are yeah. in smaller places. And And I say this because... One, a 7% error rate is unacceptable. That's a huge improvement, by the way, from the start of the study to the end of the study. It's still disastrously bad. As anybody who watched the World Series this year saw, there were a lot of calls that could have changed the trajectory of games. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if you want an example of this that has less to do with umpires and more to do with framing, there's an outstanding piece in Fangraphs last year. I think it was like April or May. Um, and I know the name of the piece. I don't remember the date, but it's called Who Framed Victor Caratini? Nice. And this is about Gar- Caratini was the batter in the situation. The Cubs were playing the Pirates. The catcher is Cervelli. Uh, the ball bounces to the backstop, but Cervelli like raises his glove up as if he caught the ball. And it gets called a strike as the ball bounces behind the umpire and hits the uh, backstop. Oh, God. It is literally a ball in the dirt that Cervelli quote-unquote frames well. How is that good baseball or good for anybody that a ball in the dirt got called a strike because Victor Cervelli was deceptive? I don't understand how this is good for the game. That's like that old, like, 1930s footage of you see, like, ballplayers pretending to throw a baseball around to each other, but no one actually has the ball. And somehow an umpire decides, yeah, that's that's a strike. Wow. Jesus. That is... Cool Papa Bell trickery horseshit right there. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And so here's here's the deal. Like, I get it. This is not the strongest point of Wilson's game. However, he's gotten better at it than he had been a couple of years ago. And people forget this one, but Wilson's best framing numbers were in 2016 when David Ross and Miguel Montero were both on staff. And, and I have to believe 
some of that had to do with tutoring and mentoring and those types of things. So I, I'm very curious to see what happens with Wilson Contreras on the Cubs, David Ross coaching, and him being able to take some of those lessons on a routine basis, assuming that the Cubs don't do something that I would consider absolutely silly yeah. and trade away a $4.5 million catcher who happens to be one of the two or three best offensive catchers in the league. Literally not a replaceable position. I mean, Yasmani Grandal is one of the other ones. Uh, Gary Sanchez is the third. JT Romuto would be next, depending on which stat you're looking at. None of those guys, with the exception of Sanchez, because he's about the same arbitration level that Wilson is, none of those guys are going to cost you $4.5 million next year. That is not a replaceable bat. It's not a replaceable player. And for every person that thought that the Cubs were going to somehow trade Wilson Contreras and turn him into Yasmani Grandal, Yasmani Grandal just got $18 million a year. Mm -hmm. So that was never going to happen. That's that's not really a thing that happens. You are, if they trade Wilson Contreras, they are guaranteeing that for at least one year and probably two, depending on Amaya's timeline, they are going to have a worse starting offensive catcher. And this is a team that has not exactly been offensively consistent mm -hmm. <laughs> for yeah. the last few seasons. Yeah, I mean, the... the the Contreras trade talk, and this kind of surrounds just about every Cub who has been rumored uh, to be on the market. And my reaction to them, it, it's it's the same for just about all of them, uh, where after, you know, two kind of disappointing seasons uh, and two very disappointing offensive performances in the past two years, you go into the offseason thinking, OK, yeah, they probably have to change something around here and, and figure out a way to get more contact into this lineup somehow. And yet every time, no matter who it is, whether it's Wilson or Chris Bryant or anybody that gets brought up in terms of, well, uh, the Cubs are going to shop this guy. My first response is, no, I don't want to get rid of him. That That's the core right there. And well, and part of that is I, I emotionally imprinted on everybody from the 2016 team, except piece of shits like Addison Russell. Uh, but Addison uh, Russell, who hopefully will no longer be a Cub at the yep. non-tender deadline in two weeks. We are counting down the days at this point that uh, that thankfully gets gets bad rubbish, good riddance to bad rubbish off of this team. But it, it yeah, to me, I I don't see how you get. I certainly don't see how you get better trading Chris Bryant at all. And you would have to go a long way to convince me that you can get better by trading Wilson Contreras, given that. Grandal, as you say, Grandal and Sanchez are the only two catchers I can think of, and maybe Real Muto, who can do what he does at the plates. And that is such an advantage to have that and to have that weapon in your lineup every day and not have an offensive black hole coming out of the two spot uh, for, you know, 140 games a year. Uh, so, yeah, it's I, I, I'm of no help when it comes to suggesting Cubs trades because, uh, yeah, I'm just hugging them, hugging my 2016 team too close still. Even well, though, as we got to stop. I mean, I think I, I I think this was in the comment section at BCB. I'm trying to remember where exactly I said this, but basically Wilson is a three-ish war player when he's healthy for the entire season. So you need to, if you want to make that trade make sense, you need to bring in a three-ish war bat now yes. that can play in the lineup and improve some position, be it catcher or one of the outfield positions or second base or something immediately and you probably need to bring in a top 100 prospect or two and i just don't think anybody's going to meet that price I, I i think that is the price for a wilson Contreras, and i think if nobody's going to meet it then theo should hang on to wilson Contreras. yeah um i will say heart sorry you were talking about chris bryant trade stuff for a second and i just have to talk about an absolute gem 
that came across my timeline earlier oh, today. Yes, so, please. yeah, so a, a hypothetical offseason trade that was on MLB Network earlier today, according yeah. to Joel, Joel Sherman, he thinks that the Cubs should trade Jason Hayward and his four-year $86 million contract and Chris Bryant for Gene Segura and Jay Bruce. In the words of Cory Booker, maybe he was high when he thought of it. This is one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know in, in on what planet is is that even close to acceptable. That uh, Gene Segura and Jay Bruce both at their best, that that at the very top of the line, I don't think come close to what Chris Bryant gives you in even an average year for him. Uh, well, and Jason Hayward in a good year, yeah. we haven't seen the best year Jason Hayward is going to have with the Cubs yet. Right, right. And 2019 Jason Hayward, when he wasn't leading off, was totally yes adequate and fine. Yes, which I realize. So, you are saying, if only you took away the, what was it, 0 for 35 or whatever whatever he was on, it would have been a, a great year. But even even with that, it was still acceptable. For- I don't want to derail your entire podcast here, but I cannot for the life of me figure out why the only player on the Cubs who seems to be able to hit in the leadoff spot is Anthony Rizzo. But at this <laughs> point, just leave him there. Just just leave him yeah. there. I understand that it's not ideal lineup construction because of his power bat and all this other type of stuff. But seriously, nobody else on this team seems to know how to lead off. Yeah, there there are certainly worse ideas in, in that lineup, as as we saw pretty much every game last year, except for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, feel free to derail this podcast anytime, because <laughs> I think that the, the mere fact of my hosting it is like half a derailment right there. So, <laughs> well, I was just going to say, so Wilson Contreras, still my favorite, still not close. Yep. And I'm wearing my Contreras jersey to Wrigley Field for opening day next year, whether he is a cub or not. And yeah. In either instance, that will be a nice little FU to the offseason where I had to listen to all of these conversations about Wilson Contreras not being a Cub next year. And even if, in worst, very worst case scenario, he does get traded, Wilson Contreras is still going down as an all-time beloved Cub. Oh, yeah. Someone who came up uh, in the middle of that 2016 season and did so many great things in the span of four months that year. And uh, and played such a key role in in that World Series run. Well, can I tell you? Can, sorry, can I derail your podcast and tell oh, you my favorite yeah. Wilson Contreras yeah. story? I think yeah. I've told it to you before, but your listeners probably haven't heard it. Carrie Musket reported this, um, I think, in 2016, and it's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard in baseball. It's why Wilson is my favorite. Um, he was signed as an international signing in Venezuela when he was 16 years old. The Cubs were there for five days doing tryouts all over the country. He showed up the first day. The Cubs gave him a contract and said, you are going to play for the Cubs one day. They signed him. He was super excited. The next day, day two of five for the tryouts, 200 miles away from Wilson's hometown, the Cubs show up for their tryout. And the first player who shows up is Wilson Contreras. Mm. And they're like, you're, you've already got a contract. you don't need to be here. You can go home. And he says, I just want, I just want to play. I just want to work out. So they let him play and they let him work out the next day, 200 miles away. (laughs) First person who shows up 16 year old Wilson Contreras. This happens three days in a row. And they're like, and finally one of the scouts says to the other guy, look, you need to go tell Wilson. He can go home. He doesn't need to be here. He already has a contract. And he was like, you go tell Wilson to go home (laughs) because he's not going anywhere. He just wants to play. God. I, How I do you not love that dude? <laughs> I, I know 80 is the maximum sc- scouts give uh, on a scouting report score. I got to imagine like after a tryout like that, when like, they come out to like heart or intangibles or whatever bullshit word they come up with to describe it. Like you got to grade that as like 150 at least. When you <laughs> Off the charts. Yeah. 
My, my favorite Wilson story, and you probably honestly know this better than I do, uh, is the story of the day where he decided to become a catcher. Uh, or, <laughs> Go yeah, ahead. The story is something like he was in the Cubs minor leagues, had been for a few years. and Third baseman behind Chris Bryant. Baseman, yes. Uh, and saw catcher's equipment just on the ground. And just kind of out of the blue decided this seems like fun decided yeah can i did he ask if he could put it on or did he just decide i'm gonna put this on i'm pretty sure sure he just decided yeah just i put, think wilson just decides things yep that 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 seems very much a wilson Contreras personality trait uh and i think he was then asked hey do you want to try catching and he said sure and that's how Wilson became a catcher and became the starting catcher for the National League in the All-Star game the past two years because he happened to like how the mask and the shin guards looked, which is like an adorable like 1910s baseball novel for children kind of thing, if you think about that. Like I mean, a- frankly, if the Cubs are worried about Wilson Contreras's framing and trying to figure out what to do, they should just let him play in the outfield or yeah. they should just keep him around and let him play in the outfield or yeah, yeah, I mean, if they decide to play, to trade Chris Bryant, give Wilson a shot at third. <laughs> and I'm only half joking. Mm-hmm. He's so athletic. One of my favorite plays in the 2017 season, the Cubs were getting blown out by the Mets and Wilson had been catching in this game, goes to play first base after catching for hours And a ball comes at him that's about two feet over his head. And he leaps up and catches it, saving a double. Mm. And it's like, who does that after catching eight innings? Yeah. Who does that? (laughs) Wilson's a great athlete. He he can play pretty much anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. um, And that bat plays everywhere. So. Yeah, he, he would need a, uh, a period to break in because he, you do remember the play from this past year in the ninth inning in Pittsburgh. And he right, was in right field. Right. He made a great play before yeah, that, by yeah, the way. Yes. Yeah. And I, so, I, I bring that up just to say, yes, he can play there. He would just need a little bit of time to kind of get up to speed. But yeah, okay, I, but I totally this believe. This leads me to a slightly different question. Yes. Who would you rather have in right field, Wilson Contreras or Nicholas Castellanos? Oh, God. Uh the fact that you have to think about it, the fact that you're like, I'm not sure. Yeah. Keep I mean, Wilson yeah. around. Assuming that, assuming that Contreras can get up to speed. Yeah. I mean, C- Contreras is younger. And yeah, that bat will probably play a little bit longer than Castellanos, <laughs> even though we, we both love, uh, we both love uh, Nicky Two Bags. Oh, yeah. Bring back Nick the Stick. Yes. Uh, I was trying to think, is, is his nickname Big Dick Nick? And then I thought, I. Uh, don't think that's him, but big uh, Nick energy. Yeah, big Nick energy. Thank you. Yes, I, was, uh, the <laughs> I wrong, have that T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, the wrong uh, related nickname on. I, I do I get kicked off an out sports podcast if I don't remember my Dick related nicknames correctly? Is that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's your podcast. So I don't. I don't think so. But I think we can both agree that Nicholas Castellanos is hotter than Christian Yelich. Yeah. Yes, I will go with that. Yeah. Okay. Nicholas Castellanos is pretty damn smoking. At, uh, <laughs> And he does that like open shirt thing with the gold chain, and yeah. it's it's very it's very like I don't know it's very like Southern Italian. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I I, I can second that notion absolutely. <laughs> uh, so at this point, we'll move on uh, to something that I definitely wanted to talk to you about because this is this is your reporting. Uh, like you are ahead of like just about the rest of baseball with this. And it is sadly a much more depressing topic to get into, but uh, Gabe Kapler being hired as manager by the San Francisco giants. Um, First of all, not 
necessary. Like there was nothing he showed us over the past two years that indicated at all that that this is a good idea just from a baseball standpoint. And second of all, dude's fucking creepy. Uh, and do, do, uh, do you want to tell the story or do you want me to hit the highlights of um, I mean, I, I can sort of start it and you can, you can fill in some things if you think I miss anything. Yeah. I, so I kind of knew pieces of this story. I obviously read a lot of baseball news and I try to keep up on things more than just the Cubs. And over the last few years, there have been a couple of scandals that have dropped. And I, I remembered seeing Gabe Kapler's name associated with them from his time in player development in the Dodgers organization. Um, so it wasn't like an entire, it wasn't an entirely new thing to me, but in October, when the Cubs were interviewing for their manager position, one of the names that came up that was very unexpected to me and to a lot of people yeah. was Gabe Kapler. I, I, was, I was kind of shocked he got an interview for the reasons you already laid out. He is a sub 500 manager who did not exactly impress in the Philly system. And I sort of remembered he'd had some scandals associated with him, but I wasn't about to go dig out what those were. Um, I got a DM on Twitter from his former coworker, Nick Francona. And and there's a great Sports Illustrated story here that people should read if you're interested in this. Um, and I, no, uh, it, Nick Francona, uh, son of Terry Francona, correct? Yes, yeah. Um, so the Sports Illustrated story, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but if you just Google Gabe Kapler, Nick Francona, it's like the first thing that comes up. It's a long-form piece that details the allegations I'm about to talk about, but also the relationship between Francona and Kapler Francona and the Dodgers, later Francona and the Mets. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I think that Francona is a kind of complicated guy. He mm. clearly has a, has done a lot of good in baseball. He specifically got MLB to be a lot more conscientious about how they treat veterans. He is a, for, he is a Marine. Um, he served and he wanted the way Memorial Day and other celebrations are portrayed to be more thoughtful. And yep. I think that he was successful at that. And that's it. That's a huge thing for baseball. Mm -hmm. um, he also didn't get along with Kapler, was effectively fired by Kapler and the Dodgers organization. And some people have said that he might have a bit of an ax to grind there. Um, I can believe that. But still, the I mean, these are serious damn allegations regardless. Right. The thing that jumped out to me in the SI story, actually, is that it everything that they reported matched the information that I had gotten from Francona. Mm. Um, additionally, nothing in the reporting indicated that Francona's allegations against Kapler were false. They, it indicated that Francona's relationship with Kapler was really complicated, but all this other bad stuff happened and we should know about it. And so yeah. this is where I think it gets kind of important. And I, did write about this when the Giants announced that they were hiring Kapler. I, I, I was kind of sitting on it to see what the Cubs were going to do. If the Cubs had given Kapler a second interview, I was going to publish this piece before the Cubs could hire mm -hmm. Kapler. When it was decided that the Cubs job was going to come down to David Ross or Joe Espada, I wasn't sure I had a story. And yeah. only because I felt like Sports Illustrated had already written what I basically had. And there was no it didn't look like Kapler was going to get another job in baseball. So it didn't seem relevant to bring it up again. Right. Um, Gabe Kapler in his time in player development, in the Dodgers organization was involved in three separate instances where sexual assault allegations or harassment allegations were covered up 
by the amateurs and scouting department for the Dodgers. The Dodgers GM at the time was Farhan Zaidi, who is currently the president of baseball operations for the Giants. And the text messages, emails, and police reports, I mean, this Francona kept receipts. And he also has a lot of communication between himself and the powers that be about these instances that it is it is frankly shocking what happened. And I, I will relay one of the stories here. I'm not going to relay all of them, um, but just to give an idea to people who are listening of the type of thing that we're talking about, there was an instance where a 17-year-old girl was partying with a couple of Dodgers prospects and a couple of other women. They were basically drinking in a hotel room, drinking too much. Um, she got sick and passed out. Uh, there was an altercation that was between the women and that was filmed by one of the Dodger players and put on Snapchat, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, later, she and her grandmother leveled an accusation of sexual assault against one of the Dodgers players. Mm-hmm. And Kapler's response to the entire incident when he was dealing with the grandmother in a back and forth was, we should all go to dinner <laughs> and talk about this. Yeah. And the idea that he thought it was an adequate remedy, even. <laughs> it, 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 here's to me. <laughs> what, what, what this, I'm sorry. I'm so angry. <laughs> yeah. Understandable. Understandable. And uh, to, to use like an instance of Kepler's on field managerial career to kind of encapsulate the absurd insanity of this decision that he made. Gabe Kepler is also the guy who as manager of the Phillies, once tried to bring in a reliever with nobody warming up in the bullpen. And this is the guy who thought that he could be the mediator at, at a dinner meeting, a dinner meeting about his players sexually assaulting a 17 year old that to how, in in what world, but how he wanted her at the, he wants, you don't need to be a rocket scientist or know much about sexual assault to know that you should not have a victim. Yeah. And the accused without somebody who knows, I, frankly, I wouldn't do it, period. Right. <laughs> like I, I, I am not an expert in that field, but I, I would not do that. I taught for seven years and I can't imagine being to- being made aware of a sexual assault allegation from one of my students and thinking that the right answer was, let's all go out to dinner and talk about it. Um, How could you have such an utter lack of self-awareness to think that this is something that you're qualified to handle as the, what was it, the director of player development for the Dodgers. Right. Just insane. So that is one of three accusations. There's also an accusation um, around a maid who was harassed by a Dodgers player who was apparently interested in her, and she didn't uh, reciprocate those um, interests. And she was sort of, not sort of, she was assaulted and brought that to the attention of the police into the hotel. Um, There's also an instance of stalking Mm-hmm. that was alleged to be dealt with not well by the Dodgers. I mean, all of this is really bad, and the all of it is prior to 2015, and the Dodgers' response to this was basically, let's do as little as possible so that it never breaks, so that we don't have to worry about it. When Francona went to the press and all these stories started coming out, and they didn't just come out in that SI article. They came out in Sports Illustrated. They came out in ESPN. They came out in Deadspin. They came out in the Washington Post. The Washington Post has an incredible piece on all of this. Um, Their response was basically, it's before the current 
CBA and we're learning and trying to be better, which is frankly an inadequate response. But Kapler was already with the Phillies and Zadie was already with the Giants. And you sort of thought that it's one of these instances where people aren't going to lose jobs they currently have because of these allegations. But it also seems like that doesn't mean they should be guaranteed a hiring later. Right. Absolutely. And especially, and so, oh, go and, ahead. Yeah. And especially, again, when there is no real baseball reason for that hiring other than you're uh, friends with the current president of baseball operations. That, well, and so this is, this is the thing that's maddening about the Giants situation is that Kepler, at least by my account, was not the most qualified person for that position. I mean, no. I, I'm frankly shocked that Joe Espada didn't get that job. Yeah. And I wanted to. Uh, ask your opinion to this too, kind of off of that. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, I, I'm not mansplaining. I'm man asking another question. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. Uh, and so, what does that say too about the fact that Kepler immediately gets this job after being fired, justifiably so? Well, only one Latin American total is hired for a manager's position in all of baseball, and Joe Espada, who is immensely qualified for a position like this, gets the shaft in. As, as you say, because of it. Well, okay, so you've asked a couple of different questions there. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer the I'm going to answer the Latin American manager question second. Sure. So I'm I'm just sitting on that for one second. Um, the fact that Kapler got the Giants' job, and by all accounts, it sort of looks like Zadie wanted his guy in that position, and his guy was Kapler from back in the Dodgers' days. Um, this this is really troubling to me. There are, there are 30 major league manager positions in the world. And nobody has a right to those. Um, it's oh. it should be all about merit and who is the absolute most qualified person for that job. And it is troubling to me that the man who was at the helm as all of this stuff went down went out and got the guy who was also part of all of this stuff going down. And really, I think just thought it wasn't going to be an issue. I mean, in, if you watched the press conference when they hired Kapler. At one point, Zadie talks about the fact that it never even came up in his interview, so he just didn't think it would be a problem. And at another point, Kapler just starts to riff on, like, what his plans are to make amends to the Giants fan base, who is livid. Because the Giants are very – they are many things. They are very – have a very socially conscientious fan base, and they are not amused by this at all. Um, And he starts talking about how he's going to have heart-to-hearts with, like – With his mom. With Brandon Belt and, like – Madison Bumgarner and everything's going to be great. And I'm like, I can't, I can't even listen to this right now. Like, how do you think this is an answer? Um, Zadie also had this moment where he's sort of like, well, we just didn't know enough to reach out to experts. And I just, it was so sickening. And really, you didn't think that you should talk to people who actually understand how to deal with sexual assault and violence and figure out what they say, as opposed to just like winging it and trying to protect your guys. But I digress. If, if um, you know enough, that's why you should talk to experts. Like that—that's the reason why experts are there. If you don't know enough, absolutely. A situation like that. Um, and so, I mean, on my podcast about the Cubs, Cup of Cubby Blue, that I host with Andy Cruz Vanasek. Hey. Andy had the thought, and I, I want to give her credit where it's due here because this was all her. She was like, "It almost seems like he viewed Kapler's." silence and the way he operated in that situation as an asset, Mm -hmm. not as a detriment. Yeah. And having his guy who would tow the party line and go down with the ship was viewed as more important 
than having actual baseball acumen. Gabe Kapler is a sub 500 manager. Mm-hmm. He does not have a winning record as a manager. He's right. done so many bizarre things. I mean, Jake Arrieta lit him up yes. for the, the sure. Phillies brand defensive shifting um, yep. in Philadelphia. I well, so so that that's the first part of the question. Yeah. I think that what, what Andy said. If I can jump on that real fast for a second, yeah. Uh, what Andy said to me that that is like the very worst case scenario of like the stereotype of the modern manager where they think that managers, most managers now are hired just to be extensions from the front office. And that is like the most, like, like the very worst thing that can happen if you want a manager who's just going to sit there and be a yes man and not, not go along with anything. Uh, and, and that's certainly what it sounds like uh, that that's how you wanted in this instance. I have no reason to believe it's anything else. I mean, that that there were more qualified people in the pool. Yeah. I mean, for the yeah. love of God, go back and hire Dusty Baker again. Dusty Baker needs a job. Right. Dusty Baker would be a better hire than Gabe Kapler for this Giants yeah. team. Um, I mean, if you said, if as you said, if, if merit were taken into consideration for all 30 positions, why the hell is Mike Matheny have another manager's job, too? Mike Matheny being a manager is a whole other thing. But let's not confuse Mike yeah. Matheny with Gabe Kapler. Matheny and his motivational quotes are incompetent. Mm-hmm. Kapler has like actual serious issues that people should care about in his background. Um, the Latino part of this is, is different and interesting. So as recently as 2015, the only Latino manager in major league baseball was Rick Renteria. And that is shocking when you consider yeah. that 30% of the players mm-hmm. are Latino and yeah. a large number of them are from uh, Latino countries and speak Spanish. Uh, right. The idea that they're just not represented there at all. Yeah, but not talking. You remember this is Major League Baseball. Is insane. Um, La Vida Baseball, which is a wonderful, wonderful website. They have a great Twitter. You should follow them. They do a bunch of live uh, live broadcasts on Twitter. They're great. Uh, did a piece in last off season where they were at winter meetings with. There were four at that point. It was. Um, Davey Martinez, Charlie Montoyo, mm. uh, Rick Renteria, and I am blanking on one. Uh, gosh. Alex, I don't have it in front of me. Alex, Alex Cora. Yes, Alex Cora, who had just won the World Series. Yep. And they talked to the four of them, and they had just taken this picture of all of the managers. And, you know, it's very obvious. <laughs> You've got, like, a much stronger Latino core now. Um, and I – oh, and now there are five, because Carlos Beltran has the Mets right. job. Um Joe Espada should have joined those ranks this year. I understand why the Cubs went with David Ross over Joe Espada. I think there were merit and history reasons to do that. I think it's. I do not understand. I do not understand. I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want to say it it says a lot about Joe Espada's qualifications that he made it as close as he did, considering it was David Ross's job to lose. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you read the intro, Theo Epstein wrote the foreword to David Ross's book, and if you read that, it's pretty clear that Theo thinks David Ross is going to manage someday and he would like David Ross to manage for him. Yeah. Um, Joe Espada was a better candidate in my opinion for the giants job and that the giants have decided to go with somebody with all of these question marks, thinking they could just steamroll that through whatever press conferences they needed to. And that the giants fan base would just get over it, I guess. I don't know. Um, I, it's frankly appalling. And I haven't even gotten to, and I'm sorry, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Are, right. the, the 
Giants website for SB Nation, McCovey Chronicles, did an excellent piece that also looks at the Dodgers' problems with the international signing scandal that is under investigation by the FBI for human trafficking concerns. Oh, and Kepler and Zadie were also part of that. Uh, <laughs> so, like, uh, this isn't even, wow. like, just the sexual assault allegations and cover-up. This uh-huh. is so much bigger than that, and I, it's appalling. I just, I, I'm grateful to Nick Francona for trusting me with the information. Yes. I can't believe what the Giants have done here. I haven't talked to a Giants fan who's happy about this hiring or who feels good about it in any way, shape, or form. And it's another instance where, I don't know, I guess there are just different standards for certain yeah. people. Well, there are different standards for a lot of certain people in baseball. And we talked about shithead Addison Russell earlier. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's the way it, it's, if you become a general manager or a team president's guy, it seems like it is very hard to lose that designation, regardless of what you do. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, this is a, a unfortunately very, as you say, uh, it, it angering thing to talk about. It, it's infuriating to talk about. But uh, but I wanted to bring it up because, as I said, you have been ahead of everybody else that I've read online about it, and the story needs to be out there, and people need to know, to know about this. And uh, and I just want to say that I very much appreciate the reporting you've done on it, and I wish other sites would follow suit with that, honestly. I, I appreciate that. I mean, one of the things that um, Nick said in his – I asked him for comment on this when it broke, and you can find the piece on Bleed Cubby Blue, so um, it's, it's easy to find. Um, the – he mentioned that people who have access in Major League Baseball don't have have a disincentive to report on this particular situation. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, honestly, I would love to write more about baseball. And if anybody wanted to give me access, I would love it. But at the same time, some days I'm grateful that I can write about what I think is correct and accurate. And yeah. I don't have to worry about. I have no access to sacrifice. <laughs> right. So and that's and we talked about this outside of the podcast. And that's that's why, in my opinion, opinion, uh, that's that's why your writing is necessary, uh, because you don't have to worry about losing the access or losing the connections that that you're free to say, hey, this is heinous and actually write about it for the heinous story that it is. And as I say, we need to see much more of that. Uh, so we are uh, heading toward the end of this and uh, don't want to end on this really uh, infuriating and depressing notes. So uh, I guess leave it up to you. Uh, Astros scandal or scorecards? What do you want to talk about <laughs> to finish this up? I mean, I will talk about keeping score all day long. We sort yeah. of hit on the sign ceiling earlier when we were talking about right. Yelich. So yeah, let, let's yeah, let's end on let's let's end on our nerdery because uh, <laughs> yes, keeping score to me uh, it's essential. It's it is, uh, and I've I've mentioned this to many people uh, before that. If I were at a baseball game and I didn't have a scorecard in front of me with the pen in my hand filling it out, like it would feel like I was there naked somehow, uh, which I apologize for that image. But that is it. it I, I don't know how to watch a baseball game in person without a scorecard in front of me. And it's been that way uh, ever since I was five years old. That's that's how I think that's how I got in, this much into baseball is uh, my, when my dad started taking me to Wrigley Field he bought me a scorecard and taught me to keep like a very basic method of scoring. Uh, and this kind of became like my activity and it made me focus on the game in front of me. And this was again, five years old in 1984. Uh, but I have scorecards from that year and the entire thing is in my handwriting. So 
I had I watched an entire baseball game two and a half hours to three probably back then uh, and was over the moon. And I, I have to think scorekeeping is a big part of that. And I don't know. Do you feel the same way that that that's how it drew you into baseball in that similar way? So my story is actually a little bit different. I um, grew up in a neighborhood of boys uh, for, I want to say, seven or eight years. I was the only girl in the neighborhood. And then there was a little girl born down the street. And she was obviously so much younger that it's not like we were (laughs) great friends or anything. Um, And there were lots of games of stickball and wiffle ball and everything else. And I played in those games because what else was I going to do? It was like the only thing going on in the neighborhood. I also uh, loved watching baseball, the Sandberg game in 1984 was it for me. I was four years old and I remember it. Um, But the, no, so for me, when I was nine, I'm a year older than my brother. And so all of the kids in in the neighborhood who were older than me had all played for the Little League team. Um, And I went to school and they had the Little League signups in our class and asked who wanted them. And I raised my hand. I didn't know any better. Like I had no idea that, I was going to be, I, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that I was the only girl that asked for one. I was just like, I want a little league sign up. And they gave me one. And I came home with the little league sign up when I was nine years old. And my dad was like, girls don't play baseball. Ugh. And it, I, look, I, I, I was fine. <laughs> like, let's, and this is not like a, a story of heartbreak. Everything clearly yeah. worked out. Okay. Yeah. I am. I danced for years. I'm not the most athletic person in the world from a baseball perspective, but it was kind of the first moment where it's like, oh, this th- these things that I do, like building tree houses and mm-hmm. playing baseball and running around and skidding my, like all of that type of stuff is not what is expected of me. Did, did um, you think that A League of Their Own was a movie about Tom Hanks? Well, League of Their Own certainly hadn't come out yet. Uh, uh, League of Their Own was still like four or five years away. Yes. Um, so the, anyway, my dad coached the team. My brother would eventually play for it. I kept the, originally I was in charge of the hand scoreboard in left field. So I had like all the numbers and I would sit out there and like every time somebody scored, I would change the score Mm -hmm. on the innings. Um, But as I got older, my mom actually turned the team scorebook over to me and I was in charge of the official scorebook for the Price Central Little League team. (laughs) And I took this job very seriously and they had a really good team. They had a good all-star team. When they would pick all-stars, I would do the calculations to make sure that they could go in and say, well, this person's batting average is this, and this person's batting average is that, and all that type of stuff, because I'm a nerd, and that's me. Um, And so, yeah, keeping score was really my way of being part of a team that I wasn't able to be a part of. Um, There was one girl in the entire league, um, maybe in the entire town now that I think about it, Jennifer McKendrick, shout out to Jennifer McKendrick if you listen to this. She was the only little girl playing Little League when I was that old. Mm. in Price, Utah, anyway. And so keeping score was my way into the game. It was like, I maybe I don't get to play, but I get to be the kid who knows about the game, and I get to be the kid who understands how to keep the scorebook. And mm-hmm. I devoured stats books about baseball. I mean, I was, you know, we were talking earlier, you asked me what Wilson Contreras' war is, and I, I do not have everybody's war memorized. I happened to be working on an article a couple weeks ago, and that was part of it. And so I just had that one off the top of my head, but I really do devour stats and have like an uncanny memory for some of this stuff. And so I was definitely the kid that was like the third most home runs in history were hit by Willie Mays. You know, I was like that kid, probably insufferable and obnoxious at the time, but it worked out okay for me in the end. 
The only difference between the two of us as kids is that I would have cited the stats from Ted Williams. Other than that. <laughs> if I had known Ted Williams was a Latino when I was a little yeah. kid, I definitely would have been all in on the Ted Williams game. Yeah. Uh, I was in, I was very into Roberto Clemente and I was very into um, Ernie Banks was my uncle's favorite player. My uncle is the only other Cubs fan in the family and Ernie Banks was his favorite player growing up. So I had to know everything about Ernie Banks. Um, yeah. When I was a kid, my, my uh, big history, uh, Ted was my favorite from history. Uh, my kind of favorite semi-obscure for our age Cub was uh, Hack Wilson. Oh, nice. Yeah, because... The I, RBI record. Yeah, the 100, at the time, the 190 RBI. Now it's been uh, bumped up to 191. Uh, but that was like the one instance where I could cite an all-time record that was held by a Cub. And I thought, well, geez, Hack Wilson must be the damn best then. I mean, I was just obsessed with the fact that you could compare the stats of somebody who played in the 1920s with the stats of somebody who played in the 1990s yeah, and that you could do like a side-by-side comparison of those things. And obviously it's not perfect. I I was also obsessed with the fact that like certain elements changed that Mm -hmm. like there was a dead ball era, like the idea of the dead ball era, just like I I lost it. I was like, what do you mean there was a time when the ball was dead or like the fact that they changed the height on the mound in order to figure, you know, to, take away some of the advantage for pitchers and those types of things. Like all of that just blew my mind as a kid. Um, And it, so the stats and the record keeping, and I keep a scorecard at, I'll say 99% of the games I go to. um, I routinely will just go watch a baseball game by myself. I like watching baseball. I'm going to watch it by myself on the couch. I would much rather watch it at Wrigley field, which is like five blocks away. Mm-hmm. Um, every now and again, somebody looks at me like, are you here by yourself? As if it's some sort of travesty. And I'm like, I am. And it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the most beautiful place on the planet doing my favorite thing. Don't yeah. pity me. Yeah. I've, I've been to several games by myself as well. And it, it, it feels almost like in, in that instance, it's, it's like you get to commune directly with the game in front of oh, you. Oh, totally. Frankly, it's almost worse when I bring somebody to the game who's not really into it and wants to leave in the seventh inning because there's no world where I am leaving in the seventh inning. Or who asks you questions about how many ballparks you visited in the middle of the eighth when you just want to be <laughs> the So, okay, Ken is referring to the time when the Cubs season was about to die and yep. he was trying to bring, like, he clearly could see that I was, like, losing my mind and was trying to cheer me up and ask me how many ballparks I'd visited. And I might have looked at him like uh-huh. he was a crazy person for trying yeah. to disrupt my misery uh, while the Cubs were in the process of giving away the season to the Cardinals, which they eventually did, by the way. That series was one of the worst four-game series in modern memory. The three of them. And, and I went to just the one, but that was more than enough for me. That's, I went to three of the four. Yeah. And... Yeah. Wait. Every single one of those games, the Cubs had a chance to win, and it just wasn't in the cards, and it was brutal. Yeah. Uh, so I will say this uh, before we sign off uh, on this one more, just one more thought on the topic of scorekeeping. Uh, during the 2016 run to the World Series, one of my favorite small moments that I noticed uh, is every now and again that they would show Eddie Vedder either up in his box or in the front row. And every single time during the playoffs, Eddie Vedder had pencil in hand, keeping score of the game in front of him. And that is the closest I have ever come to thinking, holy shit, I'm cool, too. (laughs) So the closest I've ever come to thinking I'm cool, too, is also an Eddie Vedder story. You know the Pearl Jam documentary, Let's Play 2? Yes, yes. That's about the 2016 season and all of that. I am in this documentary. Mm. Uh, Yes, tell that story. 
So, in, uh, but but the way I'm in this documentary is sort of funny. So in the Game 7 montage, there is, they go back and forth to different scenes and they've got Eddie Vedder and they've got the players and they've got all this other type of stuff and they show some like random shots of people in a bar. And there's like a shot of people in the bar really worried. And then there's a shot of people in the bar like cheering and crying and everything. I am in that montage as one of the bar people. It's nice. at Murphy's. And the thing that is funny about this is that that is game six, not game seven. Because I watched game seven at Bernie's and I watched game six at Murphy's. And that, my worried face before the game and my face when the Cubs finally put it out of reach early were apparently good enough for the game seven montage. <laughs> yeah, you are, you have you give them enough drama uh, just by your wonderful self that they think, OK, yep. This fits in perfectly. We can, through the magic of editing, we can pretend that uh, that this is all game seven. But it, it took me a minute the first time I saw it. I'm like, I noticed the guy I was standing next to before I noticed myself. I'm like, I've seen that guy before. I'm like, he was watching game six with me. I looked at him like, that's game six. I love, that you game I, I love that you have so much sense memory that you remember, yes, this was the guy that I was next to for game six <laughs> as opposed to game seven. I just and that remember means, random things, Ken. <laughs> You're the perfect fan reaction shot, I think, is what is what that indicates, which which is a, a high compliment in my world. Uh, and I think the the best way to end not just this discussion, but the podcast is to go to the very last shot of the Let's Play 2 documentary. And I don't know if you remember this one where Eddie Vedder is on the field in Cleveland after uh, the Game 7 triumph and just kind of soaking it all in. And the guy holding the camera comes up to him and says, so, Eddie, what would you say to your 10 year old self if he were here now? And Eddie pauses for a second, looks at the camera and says, you were right. And I just, just melt, just <laughs> melt. Oh, gosh. And on that note, Sarah Sanchez, uh, you can be found on Twitter at BCB underscore Sarah. And your podcast, Cup of Cubby Blue, can also be found on Twitter at Cup of Cubby Blue. Any other things you'd like to plug? I can't talk right now. I'm crying because I'm thinking about <laughs> how my, my four-year-old self was right. I, I, I think that is uh, the response I get at the end of every single one of the five podcasts I've recorded so far. So that is five for five. That's a perfect batting a thousand. Thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great.